brink of tears, the emotion. Four seconds. The final shot, but little too late. It is fever pitch here at RAC Arena in Perth as they take their first premiership in 25 years. What a grand final and commentary from one of my dear friends, Catherine Cox, an absolute legend of the game and courtesy of Fox Sports and also KO. Okay, let's get to Dan Ryan, a premiership winning coach in 2022. I think you'll love this episode. Dan Ryan, welcome to The Perfect Ten. Thanks for having me, mate. Looking forward to having a chat today. Barack Obama at his inauguration, I'm sure you probably saw it, but he said there's nothing so satisfying to the spirit so defining of our character than giving our all to a difficult task. Now, that's certainly what you did in Adelaide during two just incredibly tough years. And there's a lot of talk that you're a scapegoat. Uh, Nepal, South Australia, I think they went through five coaches in a really quick period, in quick succession. Not enough finances into the program. But if we're talking about defining of character, you've even said that that period defines you as a coach. Yeah, it's a great quote, actually. Um... Yeah, I think, you know, I've obviously reflected a lot and spoken a lot about my experience in Adelaide and, you know, I can sit here hand on heart and say that while it was the most challenging and confronting and difficult period of my life, it was the best thing that has ever happened to me because of what it taught me and how it made me grow and evolve and learn. How about for you personally? Were there times where you had a little bit of self-doubt or do you still always believe that your coaching philosophies will be successful? Yeah, good question. I I think certainly doubt crept in every now and then, but I think for me it was probably the handling the, the pressure of it more than anything else when you're on survival mode. So you never felt on top of things. You never felt like things were going well. There was always a spot fire to put out. There was always a challenge here or a struggle here. It was always just very, very difficult. And I think probably I spent a lot of the time, to be honest, in shock that this was what the experience was. This was meant to be me living my dream, coaching at the top level, and it was nothing but a nightmare. And I'm like, this is not worth it. This is not how I want to be living my life. There's no joy here. There's no fun here. This is just stressful. I'm ridden Mm. with anxiety. It was really, really difficult. So, Husey, 2013, your life changes forever, and it starts with a couple of headaches. Is that correct? Yeah, Steve. So, I was 36 years of age at the time, and... um, Life was going well, uh, three children under 10. And I just uh, I had headaches from nowhere. And um, for, the, for a full day, which was very, very weird, I thought maybe it was a migraine and woke up and was headaches again the next day. And then that afternoon I went, saw my doctor and he seemed a bit funny about it and um, sent me straight for a scan and had that scan that afternoon. And from that point, um, my life was turned upside down. Um, My life had changed. And uh, I was at the start of what was gonna be a um, horrific battle. Yeah, I'd imagine that first diagnosis, you're just absolutely numb. And I I believe Kiralee said she actually collapsed when she heard the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, obviously uh, it puts a lot of pressure on the people around you. And 
I probably handled it better than a lot. And obviously, Kira Lee took a lot of it on board and um, felt the strain. And yeah, it was really tough on her um, and our families, you know, my parents and her parents. And my kids were pretty young, so it didn't it didn't really affect them too bad. Yeah, from what I heard on the Dermot Brereton podcast, you pretty much went in search of some kind of positivity. So the second diagnosis is even worse than the first, but then you go to Sydney looking for some more answers, and what did you find? Yeah, so I went to another doctor getting ready for my treatment, and um, the news just seemed to get worse. So we rang around and found out that uh, potentially the best in the, in, in the brain cancer field were down at the Royal North Shore in Sydney. So we, um, we got, got ourselves down to there as fast as we could. And it was like, a la- it was like if this fails, we've got no hope. I remember my dad drove me down and I was in the front seat. Kira Lee was in the back seat. She had pillows. She was just laying down in the back, almost lifeless. Um, it was really tough, but got there. Went and seen them, and I remember being quite nervous because, you know, and I needed some decent news. I needed some hope. And um, they looked at the they looked at the uh, tumor. They they gave me all the readings of, you know, what ten percent's this and six percent's this. That's a good thing. And they they started like breaking it all down and said there's some some nice little parts of this tumor that might give you a favorable outcome. So they said there's some real serious hope. And from that point on I think our mindset changed a bit because we had some hope that we could make a go of this. Hey Mark like everyone we're all sad to hear the passing of Olivia Newton-John just an absolute icon a hero just so beautiful and she said that when she was diagnosed she didn't want to know a time frame because she felt like that would really hamper yeah her life. How about for you did you want brutal honesty or did you want to see how things unfolded? Yeah, I, I, did, I wanted to see how things unfolded. I've never, I've never Googled or looked up my situation. I don't even know the name of my tumour. Um, I just know um, that I'm going to, you know, fight this thing so hard, day in, day out, and that's all that matters. And, you know, I'm pretty focused on the present and on, and on now, and I just want to make today the best I can, and I'll wake up tomorrow and start again. Five-year-old Potas climbed the stands in search of a family. Gosh, I just can't believe it. It hasn't sunk in yet. I'm just so happy. And all my family, my friends, and everyone special to me is here today. I couldn't believe it, and I had to have my cry. The pair that split up for two years after Atlanta and then reunited as the dream machine has fulfilled every beach volleyballer's ambition. So there we go, and how amazing is it to hear that audio again after all these years? Kerry Potthast, OAM, winning gold on the sands of Bondi Beach. A businesswoman, motivational speaker, a mum, which is probably, well, definitely the most important of the entire lot. Kerry Potthast, OAM, welcome to The Perfect Ten. Well, that is a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. Obviously, you play a team that had an unbelievable record in the final, but I want to know about the senses. So you mentioned about walking up the ramp in Atlanta, and that's so powerful. And then what are your senses like in Sydney? What is different to you from the outset? Well, like, why is Sydney different? Well, the thing was that by the time we got to Sydney, we were comfortable 
with it being different. And this is the most important part. We learned how to be uncomfortable because no one knew what it was going to be like playing in Sydney. No athlete could have had any experience of a home games because it hadn't been, you know, they hadn't played in 56, for instance, or they hadn't competed back then in Melbourne. So that they just we just didn't know what it was going to be like playing at home. Um, so that, for one, it was the biggest difference. And having your family and your friends so close, knowing that they're all in the, the stands and everyone's just cheering for you, like in Bondi, 10,000 people cheering for you was incredibly loud. But when you lost a point, or made a mistake, they all felt sorry for you. So that oh, it's just as loud. So it's the emotional roller coaster that was really, really different. So for me, the way I, I dealt with that, it was almost like remember in Get Smart, you know, they would have the cone of silence. <laughs> I love the cone of silence. When I watched that the video of the last point landing out, I, I served a big serve. Um, they weren't able to control it. Was going over on our side. I chased it to the sideline. And as that ball was landing out, you know, Natalie was screaming towards me as in saying, you know, yelling out, leave it or it's out or something because she knew it was going out. But I, I kind of just instinctually went to it anyway. I let it drop. And at that moment that it dropped, I dropped to the ground and it was like that cone of silence that shattered all around me. And I could hear literally everybody screaming and Natalie was on top of me and it, it was just like my senses just came alive. Hey, uh, we can't do this podcast without, I guess, stepping through and, you know, I know it's going to be delicate, but that <clears throat> period where you left the Swifts and go to the Giants. And <clears throat> so there was never an offer tabled for a legend of the New South Wales Swifts and that made your decision far easier? So, yeah, it was like it was a very tricky time, Steve. And yes. obviously a lot of politics come into it and... You know, just like players with pressure, coaches have pressure too. And going into grand finals, and I say this about Julie Fitzgerald all the time, she's the most consistent coach I've ever been under um, in the fact that she doesn't change when pressure starts to form. And that's the kind of person that you want leading you. And, um, yeah, I, I just knew that I started my career with her and I wanted to finish my career with her and give myself every opportunity to yeah, start afresh and find my love of playing again um, under a different coach that, yeah, just, I guess, would be very straight with you and there was no games to be played. I can't explain to you how terrifying it was. Like when you, I don't know if anyone has ever been in a situation where you you are actually in a situation and you know you've still got 30 minutes to go to get to high ground and, and you're thinking to yourself, I could die here. Someone in my family could actually die here in the next half an hour. And to go through that, that situation was just, mate, I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, yeah, I, I still get a bit. Yeah, I'm not surprised. You you made the national news. You're viewed as a hero as well through that period. Yeah, I, I mean, I still get a little bit emotional, but um, we got through it. Uh, yeah, well, um, 
we survived and then you know, we spent a couple of days at the army barracks and um you know one one of the best things that happened was like the aftermath so we had to go back and you got to you got to go back to your house eventually so it was like you know three or four days later you know you go in and you just open your house up and you just look at it and it's just you know there's honestly 10 centimeters of mud over everything and you just think where do you start and what do you do so you lost everything everything so um one of the best examples of leadership um i've ever seen so i come into the house that day it was about four days after the flood and i was just so overwhelmed with like where do you start what what do you do here you're just looking at you know we were talking about the rothman's medal and i went to the drawer where the rothman's medal was and it was just black and covered in mud and if i didn't know where it was it would have just gone missing so i'm standing there and next minute i heard about five utes pull up in the front driveway and it was just all the players and that's incredible so the cowboys are at the front of your house you all right, buddy? Um, I had um, a good relationship with all the players, you know, so some of them themselves, you know, my poor old Jakey Granville, the trainer, you know, they lost everything, turned up and they said, righto, Daisy, what what are we going to do? And I just said, boys, every single thing you see in this house has to go on the front lawn. And there would have been, I reckon, 15, 15 players and they just ripped in and the whole the whole thing was done in two hours. And I remember Mitch Dunn, a young kid coming through, a terrific kid. He's actually got a broom and he's sweeping <laughs> he's sweeping the um the kitchen floor and I said, Dunny, you've done enough. <laughs> like I don't know if sweeping the floor is gonna really do too much now. So, you know, I'm standing there and then I'm overwhelmed. I just didn't know what to do the next minute. They just said, they just walked in the front door and just said, what do you want done? There was no talking. Everyone just ripped in, got the job done, went from my house, got all my work done, and then they went and saw Jake Granville or the next house or the next person that needed help. Thanks for listening. Take care. And we'll catch you next time on The Perfect Ten. (laughs) 